If you like all things spooky, then check out A Spooky Tales, hosted by us, Christina. And MJ, where we talk about all things spooky, paranormal stories, haunted places, myths, and legends. Listen to guests tell us their scary stories. And I hear them call me by, by my name. So I run into the kitchen to check, and there's nobody there. And I start to, like, hear... Like my closet door start to open. Oh hell no! Like, oh, my God. Inside. oh hell no! All of a sudden, for no reason, I woke up in the middle of the night. Like my eyes just snapped open, and it's that strange feeling that you have when something wakes you up. You and you don't know what has woken you up until you either see what it was or you hear whatever it was. There are new episodes every Friday. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts, as well as at SpookyTales.com. Welcome to Monsters and Mixers, the spine-chilling podcast guaranteed to quench your thirst for all things spooky and one thing drinky. Can't get enough of paranormal or true crime stories? Then this is the place for you. We are your hosts, Amy and Emma, and each episode will feature a new story and a new cocktail recipe to help calm your nerves while you listen. So grab your ingredients, pull the covers up tight, and prepare to be terrified by tales of the darkness among us. Welcome back to Monsters and Mixers podcast. I hope that wherever you are, you're not getting too much blizzardy weather. Like we are. It's been pretty awful the last two days. Honestly, not as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it, it's going to get worse, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're supposed to get maybe another eight inches on top of what we already have, which is about, I would say, only about four because we had a lot of sleep. Mm -hmm. For those of you who do not know, I am Amy. And I am Emma. And uh, we started season two last week with the first paranormal episode, so this episode is going to be the kickoff to our true crime portion of this season. Is there anything you'd like to talk about before? No, not really. I mean, other than us being prisoners in our own home right now, there's not been a whole lot going on, I don't think, in the true crime world. No, we can't no. think of anything. Although, I am kind of wanting us to plan a trip to go to the place that we talked about last week. If you had, didn't listen to that episode yet, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked about the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, and I've been interacting with some people on the internet the last few days about their stories and things that they've done on the ghost tours, and I think that we would really, really like it. Where exactly? How far away would that it's be in Louisville. for us? So, so oh, not, not too bad, like six hours. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that I was talking to said that they did that, and then the next day they went to Bobby Mackey's. Apparently they were real close to each yeah, other. Yeah, that's all, like, number one on my bucket list of places that I want to visit. Too. So, yeah, if you haven't listened last week, you can get some more info by listening to that episode. It was actually a really cool, scary place. That I hope to visit soon. Yeah, once weather permits and we can actually go do spooky stuff again. Yep. Um, but this one is going to be kind of long. Longer than last week's. Because there's a lot to discuss. So, 
strap in. I'm just going to get right into it. So today, like I said, I'm going to start off our true crime portion of the season with one of the most infamous murders in American history and a story that has amassed a massive cult-like following in the paranormal community after the multiple books and movies that it spawned. The DeFeo family murders, more famously known to most of us as the Amityville Horror Story. We forgot to mention that this is a BYOB episode, so drink what you got. Yeah, we're doing like we did the last latter season. half of yeah, mm-hmm. last season. No specialty drink today. Um, but I know most of you are probably quite familiar with the popular haunting that followed this crime. Especially if you're a horror fan like us. But what happened in those four walls prior to any sort of, quote, haunting is far more sinister. This episode will be centered around horrific and violent crimes and the murder of young children. So if you are sensitive to that sort of material, here is your warning. At around 6.30 p.m. on the evening of November 13, 1974, a 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. walked through the doors of Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, frantic. He yelled out, you gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. As most of us would be, the patrons at the bar were shocked, and a few of them accompanied him to 112 Ocean Avenue, his family home. The house was not too far from the bar, and when they got there, they found that his parents were indeed dead. Joe Yeswit, a member of the group that followed Ronald to his residence, made the call to the Suffolk County Police. Upon arrival, law enforcement entered the home and found that not only were his parents dead, but four other members of his family, six in total, were murdered in their beds. Upon further inspection, the victims were identified as Ronald DeFeo Sr., 43, who was a local car car dealer at the time, Louise DeFeo, 42, the mother and matriarch of the DeFeo family, and four of their children, Dawn, 18, Allison, 13, Mark, 12, and John Matthew III. Every single one of them had been shot with a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle. That's a mouthful. Yeah. At around 3 o'clock in the morning of that same day. The DeFeo parents had both been shot two times, while it seemed that the children had been killed with a single gunshot wound to the head. so sad. Yes. All six of the victims were found lying face down in their beds, with seemingly no sign of struggle or any sort of sedative in their system. And this will come into play with the speculation and controversy that ensued later on surrounding this case. Ronald DeFeo Jr., also known by some as Butch, was the eldest son of the family, and I'm going to refer to him as Butch more often because it's just easier to differentiate between the two of them. I don't think I've ever heard that he was called Butch before. And I've watched really? every Amityville anything there is out there. Yeah, he was known to everyone as Butch. I mean, there were multiple Ronald DeFeos in his family, so when you're a junior, you're usually given some sort of nickname, so you're not called your father's name 24-7. Yeah. And he was the eldest son of the family. As to be expected, the police immediately be- became suspicious of him, but he was taken to the police station for his own protection after insinuating to officers at the scene that the murders had been carried out by a mob hitman named Louis Fellini, or Louis Fellini. Louis, yeah. By November 15th, just two days later, DeFeo Jr. was arrested and charged with the murder of his parents and siblings. 
At the time, Robert C. Rapp, the Suffolk Deputy Police Commissioner, declined to comment when asked if Ronald had given a statement to the police, but it would later come out that at the station, DeFeo very quickly exposed himself with serious inconsistencies in his story and in his version of events. On November 14th, he confessed to carrying out the killings and told detectives, quote, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. DeFeo also admitted that he took a bath, redressed, and discarded crucial evidence like his bloodstained clothes, the rifle, and cartridges on his way to work. I don't, I, I can't even fathom what would have happened, and, and I'm sure you'll talk about it, but to have somebody snap so severely that they kill every single member of their family and then carry out their day like mm-hmm. nothing happened. Well, what you'll learn is it wasn't really a snap. It was a very gradual oh. decline into... He was a very erratic human being and had been for a while. Because of the size of the DeFeo family, the age range of their children, because I mean it's 3 to 12, yeah, 3 to 23, Mm -hmm. 3 to 24, that's expanding a lot there. And how small Amityville Village is, nearly everybody in town felt connected to them in some way or another. And these murders absolutely rocked this area at the time. Um, also the house was just kind of like a pillar in the community. I mean, it's big, beautiful. house. Yeah. If you have not seen it, I suggest looking at it. It is huge. We can post a picture of it in our our Instagram and stuff too. Yeah. Like even prior to them moving in, I mean, it was just something that was always there. I mean, we have that houses in this area. We're in a small town. There are big houses that are kind of like staples. That everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. That everybody knows. Oh yeah. It's by that house. Yes. Okay. In the weeks before the slayings, it is said that his the relationship between Butch and his father had reached a boiling point. Butch was apparently dissatisfied with the money he was earning from his dad, as they both worked at Brigante, is it Brigante or Brigant? Brigante Carl Buick, a large car dealership on Coney Island in Brooklyn. And because of this, he had a plan to further defraud his family. Two weeks prior... He was sent on an errand by one of the dealership staff members to deposit $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks at the bank. That is a lot of money, Mm -hmm. especially in 1974. Um, But instead, he arranged to be robbed on his way there by an acquaintance with whom he went on to split the money with. Hold on. So his robbery plan included 20 grand in checks? How are you going to cash the checks? That's know. not a very good plan. No. And risking your <laughs> right. job for 18 hundo is not really smart. Yeah. Butch and a separate accomplice from the dealership dealership left for the bank at 12.30 p.m. and did not return for two hours. When they did, they reported that they had been robbed at gunpoint while waiting at a red light. Ronald Sr. was at the dealership when they returned and supposedly exploded with rage when he was told the story and berated the staff member who sent him in the first place because he knows that his son is not trustworthy or reliable and will steal money. The police were called and of course wanted to interview DeFeo Jr. Instead of cooperating or even attempting to give a description of this fictional perpetrator, he became irritable and hostile with the cops. When they insinuated that he was lying, he became outright violent. He couldn't explain why he wouldn't have returned immediately to the dealership after being robbed as opposed to two whole hours later nor could he tell them where he had been in those two hours that he was gone. Butch began to curse at them and bang on the hood of a car in the lot in response to their questions, and the police backed off for a moment, but Ronald Sr. had already come to terms with the motive for his son's behavior. 
On the Friday before the murders, Butch was asked by police to examine mugshots in hopes that he may be able to pinpoint the alleged thief, which he initially agreed to, but pulled out of last minute. Spoiler he, alert, there, there was no one. Yeah. I would have pointed at some random person. Right. It was him. He's like not even trying to go along with the story. Right. When Ronald Sr. found out about this, he confronted his son at work as to why he wasn't cooperating with police. And they got in a big argument, and he shouted, you've got the devil on your back. Ooh, that's where all the devil, devil stuff came To from. which Butch responded, you fat prick, I'll kill you, before running to his car and speeding off. Could witnesses confirm whether or not his dad was, in fact, a fat prick? Uh, I don't want to <laughs> victim blame here. I don't know if he was a prick, but I don't think he was. I've seen pictures of him. I mean, he looked like your like typical, like, 70s dad. 70s dad. Yeah, he wasn't, like... <laughs> abusive or anything morbidly obese um, i'm just saying was he a jerk i, mean, I do don't think know? so i mean they were very respected I, I it's different you don't never know what goes on behind the walls of whatever but all of his other children loved him i think it was just those two who clashed a lot yeah because you'll see like he just did everything in his power to ruin his own life almost and did you say this earlier did he live with them he at, lived okay with so he was still living at home yes okay and i mean also i mean when you're living with your dad who you don't already have a good relationship with and you work for your dad a lot of who time. you don't have a good mm -hmm. re relationship with i mean you're bound to come to blows at some point yeah i mean it's, just, it's a lot it's a lot of time to spend with anyone mm -hmm. especially at a 23 year old guy where you should be spreading your wings a little bit and going out and kind of doing things on your own and I would assume that you would feel like you're being fathered at work mm -hmm. and then again at home and it would be kind of stifling. Yeah and his family was also his parents were very successful and he probably felt like he was not living up to that at all. I mean mm -hmm. he had drug issues he had all of these problems that he was constantly getting in trouble with the law I mean yeah he just Honestly, he was a degenerate. It almost kind of sounds like had his dad not given him a job, he probably would not have been able to get one. Oh, no, def yeah, definitely not. Or He's not like down. someone who went to college and, you know, did all that. It is reported that on the night of the killings, the entire DeFeo family had gone to bed except Butch, who sat quietly in his room, stewing. He already had a plan, and he knew what he was going to do, what he wanted to do, and his family would soon no longer be a nuisance to his life. Butch was the only family member with his own bedroom. The fact that he was the oldest and his erratic and violent behavior afforded him this luxury. Unfortunately, this also meant that he had a private storage space for all of his weapons that he collected and sold. On that night, he selected the 35 caliber Marlin rifle and quietly made his way to his parents' bedroom as they slept. He pushed aside the door to their room and without hesitation raised the rifle to his shoulder and shot the first of eight fatal shots to be fired that night. The first ripped through his dad's back, tearing through his kidney and lodging in his chest. Jeez. He fired another round that once again hit his father in the back. This one pierced the base of Ronald Sr.'s spine and lodged in his neck. This woke up Louise DeFeo, which is contrary to what a lot of people thought mm -hmm. because the whole conversation has been, why did no one wake up? Right. That's where all, a lot of the paranormal stuff takes off. She woke up, but she barely had time to react before her son fired upon her as well. The two shots fired at her shattered her rib cage and collapsed her right lung. The two of them now laid silently in pools of their own blood in their beds, a place that should have been safe for them in their own home. Despite the sounds of the shots, no one else awoke in the house, which is, like I said, something that left a lot of people skeptical. How could they not hear it? 
Butch then entered the shared bedroom of his two young brothers. He fired one shot at each of the boys as they lay sleeping. Mark laid motionless while John, whose spinal cord had been severed, twitched for a few moments after the shooting. Butch left them there as he headed towards the room of his sisters. I don't under, I know he, you said he doesn't, didn't like his dad and they had problems and all this, but I still do not understand why you would kill the rest of them. No, me neither. As he, entered, I know. as he entered the room, Allison stirred and looked up just as he lowered his rifle to her face. Allison, his youngest sister, only in grade school, was killed instantly. He then aimed his weapon at Dawn's head, and he was so close in proximity to her that the shot literally blew the left side of her face off. Oh God. And it's said that when the police came in to look at everything, like right when the police were called, they had to... They couldn't even say what had happened to the girls right away because it was so bloody and so messy that they couldn't even say that they were shot like the rest of them because they were like, we don't know what happened here. Probably looked like maybe a bludgeoning. Yeah, it looked not like the rest of them. In the span of just a mere 15 minutes, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had brutally slain each member of his family in cold blood, an act that is now known as a family annihilation or the total killing of one owns family. The DeFeo's dog, Shaggy, was tied up out by the boathouse and was barking violently in reaction to the brutality occurring in the house. His barking didn't distract Butch one bit. Aware that he had completed the task he had set out to do, he now turned his attention to cleaning himself up and establishing an alibi to throw the inevitable police investigation off the trail. Butch calmly showered, trimmed his beard, and dressed in his jeans and work boots. He then collected his bloodied clothing in the rifle, wrapped them up in a pillowcase, and headed out to his car. He threw the evidence into the car and took off into the pre-dawn hours before sunrise. Butch drove from the suburbs into Brooklyn and disposed of the pillowcase and its contents by casting them into a storm drain. He then returned to Long Island and reported to work at his grandfather's Buick dealership. Business as usual, it was 6 a.m. So nobody even woke up to the dog barking and acting crazy outside? No. I mean, I can see why over the years that's been something that everybody was like, that makes no, it makes no sense to hear a uh, gun go off in your house that many times and none of them woke up to it it's very weird i also i i read that it's possible that the sort of gun that he was using and how expansive the house was like it would have made a sound but it wouldn't have been as loud as you would think it would be Mm -hmm. and if you're in like a deep sleep i mean you'd like to think some of us are light sleepers i am not so i mean you'd like to think that you'd wake up to something like that but if you're in a deep sleep and it just sounds like reverb in your house i mean you're probably not gonna wake up and you said you're a deep sleeper i am not at all so i would hear i would probably hear the clicking of like oh, even pulling or the trigger i would hear I you would probably hear him opening your door yeah that would wake you up yes but i mean also they're not expecting anything like that to happen right. i mean they're not on edge they're not it's so sad thinking that that's going to happen Butch did not remain at work for long. He called home several times, and when his father failed to show up, he acted as though he were bored with nothing to do and left around noon. He called his girlfriend, Sherry Klein, to let her know that he would be home early from work and that he wanted to stop by and see her. On his way back in Amityville, Butch passed his friend, Bobby Kelsky, and the two stopped to talk. Butch Butch proceeded on to Sherry's house, arriving at about 1.30 p.m., Sherry was 19 years old. She's said to be a shapely and popular waitress at one of the many bars that Butch frequented with his friends. And upon arriving, he casually mentioned that he had tried to call home several times, and although all the cars were in the driveway, there was no response. 
To demonstrate, he called home from Sherry's apartment with the same result. This was his way of building his alibi. How did no one else at work be like, man, he doesn't just not show up. Yeah, he's just not here. And also, Butch is just going to leave at noon. Yeah, it's, I mean, I could see why there are definite red flags raised, but I would think that somebody would have called. Tried to call. And, and said, hey, you're not here. I mean, also, heck? It, but you never know. He could have been like, oh, I called and like, he must just still be sleeping. Like, maybe he's not feeling good today. I mean, you never know like, what he was said because that's his son that he lives with. They're probably going to go to him first before trying to call him at home. Acting puzzled but unconcerned, Ronald took Sherry shopping during the afternoon from the mall in Massapequa. Massapequa. They drove to Bobby's house. Uh, Ronald gave Bobby the same story he had given Sherry, that his family appeared to be home but that there was no answer when he called on the phone. There's something going on over there, he said. The cars are all in the driveway and I still can't get in the house. I called the house twice and nobody answered. Abruptly changing the subject, Butch asked if Bobby was going out later. Bobby replied that he was going to take a nap and that if Butch wanted to meet him out, he would be at a local bar called Henry's around 6 p.m. Butch spent the remainder of the afternoon visiting friends, drinking, and doing heroin. He finally arrived at Henry's after 6 and Bobby followed him in shortly thereafter. Once again, Butch feigned concern over his inability to reach anyone at home. I'm going to have to go home and break a window to get in, he told Bobby. Well, do what you have to do, his friend replied, replied to him. Ronald exited the bar on his supposed journey of discovery, only to return within a few minutes in a state of agitation and dismay where our story started. The following depiction of events is taken from The Real Amityville Horror, The Tragic Murder of the Ronald DeFeo Family by Douglas B. Linnett. And I think that's a good time for our first break before we dive into this next yeah, part. I'm going to get another mimosa. <laughs> Within 10 minutes, the first policeman was on the scene. Officer Kenneth Gaguski. These are some... These are some names. Weird names. <laughs> they sound very, like, Polish to me. Maybe. As he arrived, he found a group of men gathered on the DeFeo's front lawn. Butch was among them, sobbing, sobbing uncontrollably. My mother and father are dead, he said as Gaguski approached the group. The village of Amityville patrolmen entered the house and immediately went upstairs. He first discovered the bodies of Ronald and Louise, as well as those of John and Mark DeFeo. He returned downstairs to phone village headquarters from the kitchen. Ronald was seated at the kitchen table, still crying. As he listened to Graguski's description, he alerted the officer to the fact that he also had two sisters. Graguski put the rece receiver down and hurried back upstairs. By this time, another village patrolman had arrived, Officer Edwin Tyndall. The two of them found Don and Allison's room together. It would take a forensics investigator to locate where the girls had been shot and what kind of gun had killed them. There was too much blood for the officers to even begin to guess. Can you imagine? No, I could not imagine. Walking into that. It would be horrible. I, I, no, my brain can't wrap around. I, I couldn't be a police officer for that reason. Lots of reasons, but blood in general freaks me out really bad and... Things that I know hurt really bad on someone else. Like, if somebody gets hurt and I see it, it really makes me kind of um, squeamish. Yeah. Shortly after 7 p.m., the neighborhood was buzzing with word of what had transpired in the house. Like I said, this town is small. It's literally called the village of Amityville. Mm -hmm. Word is going to spread fast. 
The house itself was filled with police personnel, while neighbors and assorted onlookers gathered on the front lawn. Suffolk County Detective Gasper Randazzo, that's an awesome name, Mm -hmm. not Casper, but Gasper, was the first to question Butch. They sat together in the DeFeo kitchen as Randazzo asked Butch who he thought could have done such a thing. Louis Fellini, Butch replied after a moment's pause. Fellini was a notorious mafia hitman whom Butch, excuse me, whom Butch claimed held a grudge against his family as a result of an argument between the two of them a few years prior. Why did he not blame him for the robbery? Duh. Yeah. <clears throat> the interview continued at the next door neighbor's house where a temporary police command center had been established. Detective Gerard Go- Gozaloff, Gozaloff joined in the process. It was suggested that if the mem- uh, murderers were indeed linked to organized crime, that Butch might still be a target and that any further questioning should take place at police headquarters, which is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. The police probably don't want to be in the midst of a mafia, gun, bo- gun gang, battle. Yeah, yeah. gang fight- fights. Fightles. <laughs> it was here that they were joined by a third detective, Joseph Napolitano, and it was here that Butch gave police his written statement. In it, he claimed to have been home the night before and that he stayed up until 2 a.m. watching the film Castle Keep on television. At 4 a.m., he reported walking past the upstairs bathroom and that his brother's wheelchair was in front of the door. He also claimed to have heard the toilet flush. Since he couldn't go back to sleep, he decided to head to work early. He described the rest of his day, leaving work early, visiting with Sherry and Bobby, drinking, and trying to reach his family by telephone. He said that when he finally returned home to check on his family, he entered the house through a kitchen window. Does he not have a key to the house? Which, why? Yeah. And went upstairs where he discovered his parents' bodies. Upon his discovery, he raced downstairs and back to Henry's bar where he rounded up some men who subsequently alerted the police. After Butch submitted his signed statement, the detectives continued to question him about his family, about his suggestion that Louis Fellini might be the killer. Butch replied that Fellini had lived with them for a period of time, and during that time, he had helped Butch and his father carve out a hiding space in the basement where Ronald Sr. kept a stash of gems and cash. (laughs) His argument with Fellini had stemmed from an incident where Fellini criticized some work Butch had done at the auto dealership. Butch also voluntarily confessed to being a casual user of heroin, as well as to the fact that he had set on one of his father's boats on fire so that Ronald Sr. could collect on an insurance claim rather than paying for the motor, which Butch had originally damaged. Around 3 a.m., the detectives had finished their questioning, and Butch went to sleep on a cot in a back filing room. Ronald Jr. gave every appearance of a cooperative witness, and so far the detectives had no reason to hold Butch under suspicion. So he's saying that he did it because his dad asked him to, like, set that boat on fire? Yes. So so he's... And I'm not trying to, because we don't know, and they're dead, but it doesn't sound like the dad was quite as upstanding of a citizen as everybody thought. No, but I also feel like that's almost his way of... uh, trying to smear his dad's name a little bit like oh he's doing all of these like shady business dealings he's having me like commit insurance fraud for him like making him look like he would be the target of someone like louis fellini mm-hmm. did they find gems and things stashed in some secret hideaway they did not surprise oh, i was kind of excited by that prospect of gems yeah what is this the whole diamond 1630 <laughs> like we have gems diamond in the wall <laughs> That circumstance was beginning to change, however, as investigators continued to examine physical evidence, both at the crime scene and in the police labs. 
A crucial discovery was made around 2.30 a.m. November 15th when Detective John Shervel was making a last sweep through the DeFeo bedrooms. Rooms where the murders had taken place had been scoured thoroughly, while Ronald's room had so far been given a slight once-over. Weird. And, and also, if the Fellini guy had a problem with Butch... Him being the only one left alive makes zero sense from the beginning. And the police quickly realized that okay. that makes absolutely no sense say, whatsoever. That should have been like their first train of thought. Like, yes. wait, his beef was with you, yet you're here sitting talking to us and he killed your... Your entire family and left you. Spared killed you. all the women and children and left Which also, I mean, person. if you've ever... If you're familiar with the mob, you typically yeah. don't go after women and children. Right, you leave the families alone. Yeah. I watch Sopranos and yeah. stuff. Business is done between the men. Yeah. Unless, I guess there's a female mob boss, but usually they're left alone, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, it's okay. Uh, Ronald's room had just been given a slight once-over, and upon a second look, Detective Shervel spotted a pair of rectangular cardboard boxes, both with labels describing their recent contents. Marlin rifles, a .22 and a .35. Shervel was unaware that a .35 caliber Marlin had been the murder weapon, but snagged the boxes anyways in the event that they may be important evidence which they were. Shortly after arriving at police headquarters with the new evidence, Shervil learned exactly what make of weapon had been used in the murders. Sub- subsequent questioning of Bobby Kelsky led to the discovery that Butch was a gun fanatic and that he had staged the robbery of the Brigante Buick receipts. The detectives on the case began to seriously consider the possibility that Butch had been playing them and that he may be their suspect, that he at least knew much more about the killings than what he told them so far. At 8.45 a.m., Detective George Harrison, which I thought was kind of cool. It's not the Beatle. You're not going to confuse him with the Beatle. You have to say anything Detective Harrison (laughs) says with the British accent. Shook Butch awake. Did you find Fellini yet? He asked. But Harrison was not there with any news of that sort. He was there to read Butch his rights. DeFeo protested that he had been trying to be cooperative all along and that it wasn't necessary to read him his rights. He went so far as to waive his right to counsel, all to prove that he was an innocent witness with nothing to hide. Which, that didn't work for you, Stupid buddy. move, anyways. Mm-hmm. By this time, Gozaloff and Na- Napolitano, my gosh, they, these freaking Italian motherfuckers. <laughs> I literally cannot keep up. Keep up. Napolitano were exhausted. I mean, you can imagine they're working Mm -hmm. for 48 hours at this point. Two other officers, Lieutenant Robert Dunn and Detective Dennis Rafferty, took over. These two meant business. Rafferty reread Butch's rights and proceeded to question the suspect about his activities and whereabouts over the prior two days. Rafferty zeroed in on the time of the murders. Butch had written in a statement that he was up as early as 4 a.m. and that he heard his brother in the bathroom at that time. Butch, the whole family was found in bed lying in their bedclothes, said Rafferty. That indicates to me that it didn't happen at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon after you had gone to work. Rafferty continued to press Butch until he was able to pry him away from his earlier version of when the crime took place, establishing that the crime actually took place between 2 and 4 a.m. Are you going to pause here so you can apologize to the Italians that you just offended? No. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't pronounce some of these names. They're so long and... So many vowels in them. With this slight fissure, Butch's horribly constructed story began to crumble, as most do. Dunn and Rafferty hammered at the discrepancies between Butch's stated version of the events and what the physical evidence led police to believe actually happened. Butch was physically linked to the scene once the time of the murders was established. At first, 
Butch tried desperately to make the best out of a deteriorating situation, trying to lead the detectives to believe that while he had indeed been present in the home during the murders, he had only been in each bedroom after the murders had taken place. But the police weren't biting. That's very smart. Butch, it's incredible, said Rafferty. It's almost unbelievable. Butch, we know we have a thirty-five caliber gun box from your room. Every one of the victims has been shot with a thirty-five caliber, and you've seen the whole thing. There has to be more to it. It's your gun that was used. More desperate than ever, Butch continued to lie, even as his lies put him more squarely in the middle of the murders. He told the police that at 3.30 a.m., Louis Fellini woke him up and put a revolver to his head. Wouldn't you have led with that? Yeah, you think. Another man was present in the room, Butch said, but upon further questioning, he could not provide any kind of physical description to the police. According to Butch's new version of events, Fellini and his companion led Butch from room to room, murdering each one of his family members. The police let Butch keep talking, and he eventually implicated himself as he described how he gathered and then discarded evidence from the crime scene. Wait a minute, said Rafferty. Why did you pick up the cartridge if you had nothing to do with it? You didn't know it was your gun that was used. Butch, Butch, Butch. <laughs> Butch didn't respond to the question, because he has no answer. So the investigators allowed him to talk some more. They had already gotten a good deal of evidence implicating Butch, all the while pretending to believe that Fellini and his accomplice had taken Butch along on their killing spree while sparing his life alone. Once they had been given a solid description of how the murders took place, Dunn went in for the kill. They must have made you a piece of it, he told Butch. They must have made you shoot at least one of them, or some of them. Butch fell for it, and the trap was sprung. Crafty. It didn't happen that way, did it? asked Rafferty. Give me a minute, Butch replied, his head in his hands. Butch, they were never there, were they? Fellini and the other guy were never there. No, Butch finally confessed. It all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. I mean, do you think he was just literally just so raged, enraged and probably high or drunk or something? I think he was high and pissed off. And I think he it just escalated. seems to be that he, I mean, he has a pattern of obviously not realizing the consequences of his actions because he already tried to rob his dad, which is right. so stupid because you're going to be the first person that they look at if money goes missing, if you're the one that was handed the money. Yeah. So I think he's literally, this sounds mean, but I think he's stupid. Yeah, I mean... Like, incredibly stupid. And very, very uh, impulsive, and impulsive, impulsivity and drugs tend to have a very disastrous outcome in most situations. And I also think, honestly, he might have just been evil. Like, he was... He had years prior where his behavior... Like, they literally gave him his own room because he was so, like, erratic and violent. Like, he had so many violent outbursts. I almost wonder if there's a lot of, like, untreated, like, mental illness going on here. I mean, there definitely has to be. But the heroin and all the opioids he was doing, like, definitely were not helping. No. I only know, we talked about this during break, but I have only ever looked into the things that happened after the DeFeo, um murders because I am always focused on the paranormal side so this is all very new information to me and my head is exploding with the inconsistencies and the things that should have been so apparent to everybody mm -hmm. right away but that's because I know that he did it and it's a lot easier for me Hindsight's to pick apart things that as someone who's listening to things with a fresh lens would not obviously be doing but I mean also to the credit of the police they had him confess to the crime 
in under 48 hours. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, he was arrested two days after. And probably after he began to come down and rationalize and realize what he had done, I'm sure it became a weight on him also. Yeah, yeah, and he also realized that whatever story he had was clearly not one that made sense. No. And they're not stupid. They're going to realize immediately. I mean, you'd think if you're discarding evidence, the first thing you'd want to discard was the box that had the exact gun that yeah. they were killed with written on the box. Stupid. <laughs> like, what? You forgot that part, Butch? Yeah. Oh, Butchie boy. So now we're going to move on to the trial of Butch DeFeo. Butch DeFeo's case came to trial on Tuesday, October 14th, 1975, almost one year after the murders took place. The prosecution of DeFeo rested with Gerard Sullivan, assistant district attorney with Suffolk County. Despite DeFeo's confession, despite the fact that he had been able to lead investigators to the exact spot where he had disposed of the evidence, and despite the fact that Butch's 35 caliber rifle was positively ID'd as a murder weapon, Sullivan took no chances in his approach to prosecuting. During the period of pre-trial interviews and jury selection, Sullivan had studied DeFeo, questioned him, observed how he behaved, and interacted with others. He knew that Butch was a pathological liar and that he was evasive. He had retained well-known area attorney William Weber for his defense. His pattern of behavior before the murders would afford Weber the opportunity to plead innocence by reason of, of insanity on his client's behalf. But Sullivan knew that Butch DeFeo was not crazy, and he was indeed a violent, cold-blooded killer. His opening statement to the jury was crucial, as it would set the stage in his attempt to reveal the truth about DeFeo's criminal character. He could not afford to take for granted that the jury would see DeFeo as he did, as a sane, methodical murderer. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he said, each of you will be changed to some degree by this case. You will leave this courtroom after rendering a verdict perhaps a month from now, carrying with you an abiding memory of the horror that occurred in the night in, the, in that house at oh, I'm sorry, of the horror that occurred in that house at 112 Ocean Avenue in the dead of night 11 months ago. Bear in mind that the evidence establishing and bearing upon how these crimes were carried out is as important to your verdict as the proof bearing upon who carried them out. He continued, anticipating an insanity defense. Much of the evidence of how will bear upon the issue of whether you will excuse the defendant for his action by reason of some mental disease or defect. If you will keep your minds open, carefully evaluate and assess all the proofs, I'm confident that at the end of this case, you will come back into this courtroom and find Ronald DeFeo Jr. guilty of six counts of murder in the second degree. That's a pretty... That's a pretty powerful opening statement. Pretty good opening statement. And it automatically starts getting the jury to be thinking that that's the direction that the defense, defense is going to yeah. go. So anything they say, they're going to be questioning from yeah. the beginning. The question of DeFeo's mental state at the time of the murders would remain the defining piece of evidence upon which his acquittal or conviction would rest. Prior to the trial, Weber had shrewdly attempted to have the case dismissed outright, alleging that Butch had been refused access to counsel right before the police took his confession. No, he declined it. He said that the confession itself was obtained under duress, the product of physical abuse on the part of the police. Did he have any bruises or anything to substantiate no. that? Okay. Neither of these claims stood up under scrutiny, however, and Weber was left to defend his client's actions on the ground that he was legally insane at the time they took place, which, if any of you are familiar with courtroom proceedings, that is incredibly hard to do. Yeah. Very, very hard. And also, when you're, like, found guilty by reason of, or innocent by reason of insanity, you're not just, like, Gonna put go back into the world. Yeah. You where go you go is typically treatment. worse than where you would go if you were not. 
Sullivan called a number of witnesses, including police officers and detectives who had worked the case and assorted relatives and friends of Butch's. Through their testimony, he sought to present to the jury a more three-dimensional portrait of the man who is capable of murdering six defenseless family members, but no witness offered him this opportunity more so than DeFeo himself. He did not go on the stand. Weber called his witness and led the questioning, predictably leading his client to supply responses that would destroy DeFeo's claim of insanity. Holding a picture of his mother as she lay dead in her bed, Weber asked his client, Ronnie, that's your mother, isn't it? No, sir, Bush responded. I told you before and I'll say it again. I never saw this person before in my life. I don't know who this person is. Weber proceeded to show Butch a photo of his father's body and asked, Butch, did you kill your father? Did I kill him? Kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. Self-defense. Sullivan wore his straightest poker face while some members of the jury gasped out loud in response to DeFeo's courtroom confession. Weber continued unfazed, asking why Butch had done such a thing. As far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. I mean, that's not normal thinking, but <laughs> doesn't mean he's clinically insane. To the average layman member of the jury, DeFeo's testimony might have seemed to be that of a deranged lunatic, and it was this possibility, the possibility that DeFeo would escape judgment by duping the jury, that Sullivan worked the hardest to prevent. He wasted no time in assaulting DeFeo's testimony during cross-examination. He ridiculed Butch's seeming inability to remember who his own mother was. He exposed inconsistencies between his testimony and the statement he gave police on the night of the crime. Most of all, Sullivan pushed DeFeo's buttons, aggressively set forth to rattle his composure, to inflame his arrogance and hatred. Sullivan wanted the jury to see that, rather than the victim of insanity, Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. was a lucid, devious, cold-blooded killer. His questions began to center around the murders themselves and DeFeo's conflicting accounts of his actions that night. Sullivan knew that he would not be able to get a straight account from Butch in regard to what had transpired, but he did know that he could coax him into revealing the twisted sense of enjoyment he got from killing his entire family. You felt good at the time, he asked. Yes, sir, I believe it felt very good, Butch responded. Is that because you knew they were dead? Because you had given them each two shots? I don't know why. I can't answer that honestly. Do you remember being glad? I don't remember being glad. I remember feeling very good. It's good. Soci- that's like sociopathic. Psychotic. Oh. My gosh. You alright over there? Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hold on. Emma lost her I spot. lost my spot. I'm going back. Okay. Her phone went crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm on my emojis now. Just okay. put, just I got put it. a mad face emoji there. <laughs> That'll be accurate. Sullivan's efforts to this... To this end, culminated in his provoking Bush to the point where he actually threatened the prosecutor's life. You think I'm playing, he barked hatefully from the stand. If I had any sense, which I don't, I'd come down there and kill you now. <laughs> nothing, nothing. At least he's solidi- aware. At least he's aware that he has no sense. Yeah, nothing solidifies <laughs> a guilty verdict like threatening to murder a prosecutor or de- yeah, a prosecuting attorney. Lord. Oh, God. oh man. <sighs> I just love the self-awareness. If I had any sense, which I don't, (laughs) like, no, you don't, sir. Leaving nothing to chance, both sides had retained the services of two local, highly reputable psychiatrists. Dr. Daniel Schwartz was retained for the defense. He had interviewed a number of defendants, testifying in hundreds of cases. He would later gain widespread national notoriety as a psychiatrist who found David Berkowitz to be criminally insane in the son of Sam's Langs. Dr. Harold Zolan testified for the prosecution. 
After each expert witness had been questioned and cross-examined, a few more witnesses were called by Sullivan to testify. The verdict of innocent or guilty rested upon the question of DeFeo's sanity, as he knew it would. Weber and Sullivan made their summations. Then, on Wednesday, November 19th, 1995, a year and five, se- sorry, 75, a year and five days since the murders, the presiding judge instructed the jury to gather in the deliberation chamber and return to the court with a verdict for Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. Despite Sullivan's painstaking efforts, he knew that a guilty verdict was not a sure bet. He was awarded for his skepticism when the f- jury's first vote came back 10-2, to 2, with two holdouts who were still uncertain about DeFeo's mental state at the time of the murders. After reviewing transcripts of DeFeo's testimony, however, the vote came back at a unanimous 12-0. to 0. On Friday, November 21, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison on all six counts. So, why... I'm just wondering why they didn't go for first-degree murder, considering that the... Oh, sorry, we have a cat issue. Flinging Surprise. her poop litter everywhere. <laughs> oh, that's our really sweet, needy cat that um, is just a mess. But I'm just wondering, with him having... Them finding, like, the box of shells and stuff, and the alibi, and him establishing all that, why they didn't think that it was premeditated. Well, I feel like a lot of times they go for, especially if you're doing like six counts of something, six counts of second degree murder are way more likely to stick than six counts of first degree murder. And it could also be too that there wasn't a whole lot of difference in the punishment for one and they knew one, the second degree would be a lot easier. Yeah. And would be a lot easier to convince. I mean, if there, you have people who are on the fence, like there were some about his sanity First degree is like pre it is premeditated, and it's yeah. harder to sway someone to not think that his reason for doing so was premeditated or whatever. Yeah. Um, and also, he died last year. Really? So just recently, I think last. I'm assuming in jail. Still. In in jail last May, I believe. In prison, he had to be. How old would that make him? Well, I mean, he was 23 in 1974. So, I'm really bad at math. He died March 12, 2021. So, he was born in 1951 and he died in 2021. So, he was 70s, right? Yeah, um, he also got married in 2012. Man, can y'all quit dating people in prison? I just can't. He got married, like, multiple times. Like, He's had three spouses what is, we need since to do, prison. We need to do an episode on what the hell is wrong with... What is the attraction of some people to murderers and like Charles Manson who tried to marry a girl who's like from around here. Also, why in the hell are we letting like people like Charles Manson have access to like young women on the outside world? I mean, I'm not saying that like Ronald DeFeo was the same, but when you get people like Charles Manson who literally brainwashed young women, why is he allowed to have like get married to young women. Well, usually, though, in these instances, it's people that... The women are the ones that write the letters and initiate the contact. Yeah. So it's not like he was sending out letters looking for people who wanted to interact with him. It's usually people that are like, they do some prison pen pal or whatever. He was 69 when he died. And some good things do come out of people in prison getting to talk to others on the outside, but I don't think it should be a courtship. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. We've seen, like, even with John Wayne Gacy, he had so much um, 
like after he was arrested so much interaction with like interviewers and stuff Mm -hmm. on the outside which a lot of the times when you have like investigators and um journalists who are contacting and like talking to these people they confess more to them because they build up this like relationship with them that happened exactly with john wayne gacy we haven't done a john wayne gacy episode no we should that documentary was so freaking good we watched last year Mm -hmm. yeah is but this is he, this the part where you make it impossible for me to do a paranormal um, Amityville podcast, or can we skip that part so I can still do it? No, we're gonna talk about this. No, I mean this is still from Douglas, the man who wrote that book, and he had a lot to say about the sensationalization that happened afterwards. All right, full disclosure: I <laughs> have not vetted this, nor do I know if it is all proven. So. I fully evoke my rights to do a Amityville Paranormal podcast in the future and rebuke anything you're saying here. You're revoking your rights to doing a no, podcast? In the, oh, okay. I was going to say. Not revoke. No, I'm doing one. Well, I do think you should still take this information with an I open will. mind. I will take it with an open mind, but I, I cannot be a true paranormal podcaster and not cover Amityville. It's kind of a rite of passage. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) George and Kathy Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue on December 18th. 28 days later, they fled in terror. So begins chapter one of Jay Anson's novel, The Amityville Horror. Written as a work of nonfiction, the book purports to relate the day-to-day events that drove the new residents of High Hopes, which is what that house was referred Mm to, from their home in terror. The book became a runaway bestseller and was made into a popular movie starring Rod Steiger, Margot Kidder, Margot, Margot, sorry, Margot, I knew that, Margot Kidder, and James Brolin. They are a fantastic story never before disclosed in full detail, makes for an unforgettable book with all the shocks and gripping suspense of The Exorcist, The Omen, or Rosemary's Baby, but with one vital difference, the story is true. The Exorcist was Reads true. Reads the trailer on the book's back cover. The, the movie, true. no, it wasn't. This, there's a story behind it, but the movie did not mimic that story. I mean, they changed certain things. They like, changed a lot. Like and it was never Reagan and girl build as a true story. Anyways, that's what the trailer on the back of the book said. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying any of that. Okay. The one vital difference between truth and fiction is what paranormal investigator Dr. Stephen Kaplan spent many years trying to expose in regards to the Amityville horror. Now deceased, Dr. Kaplan was a well-respected Long Island parapsychologist, the founder of the Parapsychology Institute of America. He was a frequent guest on the WBAB radio program, Spectrum with Joel Martin. On February 16, 1976, shortly after the Lutz family, quote, fled from the house on Ocean Avenue, Dr. Kaplan received a phone call from George Lutz requesting that Kaplan, Dr. Kaplan and his associates investigate the house. As Dr. Kaplan recalled in his account of the incident, the Amityville Horror Conspiracy, this initial conversation immediately began to arouse his suspicions as to the validity of George's claims that the house was haunted by demons and all variety of evil spirits. I began to ask questions. What actually happened to him and his family? George says that he simply can't describe the psychic phenomena, but there are demons there. He even knows their names. What are their names, I ask? George won't tell me. He claims they'll appear if he as much as mentions their names out loud. Who told you that? I asked. I read it in a book. I asked him for the title, but he can't remember. He 
has read so many books since they bought the house. Books on demonology, witchcraft, Satanism, ghosts, psychic phenomena, the list went on and on. And all in just a few short weeks or so, George claims. I press him about the demons, and he answers by reciting, quote, facts he has learned about demons and Satan worship. In a discussion about witchcraft, George mentions Ray Buckland, a prominent witch in the area who ran the, ran the witchcraft museum in Bayshore before moving to New England. We put that on our list of places to go. I am getting more suspicious by the minute. Didn't George just tell me that he knew nothing of the occult up until the past two months? Ray Buckland had been gone from New York for a year or two now. That would mean George had discussed the craft, as it is called, with one of the most knowledgeable witches in the country long before he even bought the house. Dr. Kaplan's doubts about the veracity of the Lutz haunting were confirmed a year and a half later when he received a copy of the Amityville Horror. Reading it from cover to cover, he swiftly came to the conclusion that George had indeed done his witchcraft and demonology homework. The account was packed with every sort of ghost, ghoul, poltergeist, and demon, all of which employed every trick in the book to terrorize the Lutz family, but could not scare them into leaving for an entire month. The inconsistencies and fabrications Dr. Kaplan found include the complete exaggeration of the role a priest's friend played in the whole drama. In the book, a priest character named uh, Father Manusco, Mancuso, once again, is terrorized by a demon while trying to bless the new home. He is then stalked by the specter back to the rectory, where he is afflicted with boils, bleeding palms, a la stigmata, a fever, and the pervasive scent of excrement. In real life, a priest did bless the house and did have some concern about the possibility of a haunting. Both the real priest and rectory were unharmed by any such demon. Okay, but the priest did have a concern about a possible haunting, so... Henry's Bar, the scene of Bush's shocking revelation, is referred to as the, quote, witch's brew. An imaginary police sergeant named Gian Frito mentions that the police discovered the murders because Butch told the bartender a depiction of events that doesn't even come close to how they really occurred. The supernatural phenomena that the Lutzes describe witnessing is too wide-ranging, which is to say that no one, no one home could possibly hold enough demons, spooks, etc. to cause everything they say happened to them. For instance, George claims that a porcelain lion leapt from a corner of the room and bit him on the ankle. George saw a ghostly vision of Ronnie DeFeo Jr.'s head floating in the cellar. George and his wife Kathy believed they saw the burned impression of a demonic hooded figure on their fireplace. Kathy levitated above their bed. Kathy looked in the mirror and saw a decrepit elderly woman looking back. The toilets backed up with black smelly ooze and the walls of the house were covered with slime. George and Kathy looked out the living room window and saw a floating pig with glowing red eyes. Okay. In the end... This tale of horror and demonic possession was debunked by the Catholic Diocese of Rockville Center, the Amityville Police Department, William Weber, Butch DeFeo's defense attorney, U.S. District Court Judge Jack Weinstein, and even George and Kathy Lutz, who ended up recanting certain parts of the tale. The new owners of 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville were disturbed by no other visitors than the hordes of curious onlookers and those convinced that theirs was a haunted house. This entire fabrication detracted from what was in fact the true horror of Amityville, the cold-blooded murder of six innocent people by one of their own family members. Okay, so the murder was terrible. The, it's very, very tragic. Hot take. However, <laughs> I am not finding a lot in that that to me is actual credible things to disprove. Well, what, I mean, you could take of, for the fact that George and Kathy recanted most of their tales. Yes, but there's just there's been way more people than George and Kathy inside that house since then that have done actual paranormal investigations. Would you like to tell me things. who? Um, I know that there's... What a, are their names? 
Oh, she's going to start shitting on the, why can't I think of their names? Um, the famous people. What the heck? <laughs> Say it. Cause I, I can't think of them either. The really famous. The conjuring um, people. Yeah. Oh, Ed and Lorraine. Warren. Warren. Thank you. Gosh, it was not, like not coming to me. Besides Ed and Lorraine Warren, there have been countless people Ooh. over the years. It's one of the most well-known things. I'm pretty sure it's that, well known from that. I'm pretty sure from that, that story. That Ghost Adventures has an Amityville. I'm sure they do, thing. but they have There's, a lot of stuff. I'm just saying that I am not 100. I'm not even 30 percent convinced by what just one person said that it's not. That was still not a credible one story. Person and how I, many? Pe- one person. I just listed you seven. People who debunked that story. Don't get mad. Including the Catholic diocese. Okay. Well, I'm... Who are going to be the person who sent the priest to exercise the house. If they themselves are debunking this story and saying that none of this happened, I'm going to... The Catholic diocese gained nothing from being a part of this story. You want nothing to do with the Catholic church. I'm going to believe the people who (laughs) send the priest to exercise the home. So I'm going to do a deep dive into as many... Paranormal accounts from as many sources as possible. On yes, Amityville but they have to be credible accounts. That's fine. And then we will and see. And then, I, fine, you do that, and I will find all the ways in which they have been debunked since 1970. It's fine. We will have a paranormal. <laughs> we will we'll have, have a paranormal showdown, <laughs> like a dance off. So I actually expected that to be way worse. I thought you were going to make it so I was never, ever, ever going to be able to watch Amityville. You can still watch it, but I do agree happy. it is kind of there are some like the fact that like you things. even said that you don't know the story of Amityville. So now people hear Amityville Horror Story, they immediately associate it with the haunting of the Lutzes and not there the are several, six people who were murdered in their homes. There are several things that I do know and that I have read about the Amityville murders. And maybe they are part of the defense trying to go with the insanity. But the, I, I've seen newspaper clippings from... Amityville, where Ronnie DeFeo literally said the devil made him do it. And, I mean, it's like a famous yes, newspaper of article. of course he things. said that. So, there are things. The and, devil is heroin. And there are also accounts. I mean, why did the Lutzes leave? They literally abandoned this house they just put all this money into, fled in the dead of the night, and never went back for any of their things. That's not something Why did the Lutzes leave do. and then immediately, within... Tw- 24 hours of leaving, call someone to get a story going. Maybe because they needed to recoup the money from all the stuff Wouldn't they left there. Wouldn't you think the first thing you'd want to do is go back in the daylight with some help and get your shit out because they had children? Maybe, but I mean, they did They did seek help while they lived there and asked for They people. seeked help from one priest who they lied about. And it could possibly be that he was so into the occult that he did cause something to then manifest there. We shall see. I'm also curious if he was so into the occult that that's why he wanted that house. I mean, it's possible. Because you think of place people who are attracted to stuff like that because they know that it has this dark energy. And if he's so well-versed in all of these things and said that he had been reading these books and talking to, like, a headmaster witch, that it's almost like he intentionally went there seeking something. It also could be that that is a... An, like we've, you talked about, a phenomenal home, and they got a very good deal because six, pe- six people had just been killed there. I mean, they would be selling that house that probably is a million-dollar home for pennies on the dollar because no I one wants to live. I'm no one wants to live in a. They bought that house yeah, for. No one wants to live in a murder house. I mean, it's terrifying. You don't want to bring 
you're not going to get a lot of real eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, for the home of that stature. How many bedrooms does it have? Ronnie had his own, and then the girls had one. So a four bedroom home with multiple levels and a basement on the water in New York. It's, it's not on the water, but it's near. Yeah, the water. they have they have a boat. They had a boat. They have out a back. pond. Yeah, they have a boat in the movie. There's a boat. The family <laughs> had a boat too. That he set it on fire. Remember? I mean, it's a very hold on very, here. Very... Here you go. The Lutz family moved in December 18th, 1975. Which oh, holy shit, that is literally right after two months after the trial ended. That's I would never be able to do that. I could never live in a house that I knew somebody. Was so they didn't murdered. leave behind their furniture. Much of the DeFeo's family furniture was still in the house because it was included for $400 as part of the deal. That's sick. Oh, yeah, because that's part of the movie where they actually talk about um, when the kids find out about the murder, they're upset because they were literally sleeping in their beds. Yeah. Those of you who have not seen the movies, the old one is awesome. But then there's also a remake that has Ryan Reynolds, and it's really, really, really well done. The more I watch it, I think that one might be my favorite, but it does go on in a weird direction with some like Indian can no just, like a can doctor. I just read this to you? No, not if it's gonna break my paranormal heart. The role of Father Pecoraro in the story, so that's the priest mm -hmm. who went to the house, has been given considerable attention. During the course of the lawsuit surrounding the case, so there was a did they get sued or did they sue somebody? I don't know. Um we'll have to look into that. Surrounding the case in the late 1970s, Father Pecoraro stated in an affidavit that his only contact with the Lutzes concerning the matter had been by telephone. Other accounts say that Father Pecoraro did visit the house but experienced nothing unusual there. The claims of physical damage to the locks, doors, and windows were rejected by Jim and Barbara Crom Cromarty, who bought the house after them, for $55,000, which is equivalent to approximately $235,000 today. Which is still a steal. In March 1977... Barbara argued that they appeared to be the original items had, and had not been repaired. They also revealed that the, quote, red room, which is key in that, was a small closet in the basement and would have been known to the previous owners of the houses of the house, the Lutzes, because it was not concealed in any way. Yeah, because that's part of the story where it's like this room that they can't get into. And that they think there's a force behind it. The no, the red, that's, you're thinking of, um... No, it's the dog pawing at the door in the basement. The claim made in Chapter 11 of the book that the house was built on a site where the local Shinnecock Indians had once abandoned the mentally ill and the dying was rejected by local Native American leaders. The claim of cloven hoof prints in the snow on January 1st, 1976 was rejected by researchers Rick Moran and Peter Jordan, whose investigation revealed that there had been no snowfall at the time. Neighbors reported nothing unusual during the time that the Lutzes were living there. Police officers are depicted visiting the house in the book in the 1979 film, but records show that the Lutzes did not call the police during the period that they were living on Ocean Avenue. And, like they said, there was no bar in Amityville called the Witch's Brew at the time. Critics, including Stephen Kaplan, which is... The guy that... We, the parapsychologist. Yeah. Have pointed out that changes were made to the book as it was reprinted in different editions. In the original hardcover edition, Father Pecoraro's car is a old tan Ford and his he experiences an incident in which the hood flies up against the windshield while he is driving it. In later editions, the car is described as a Chevy Vega before reverting to a Ford, which doesn't really matter. I was going to say, why does that matter? And here's the lawsuit. In May 1997... George and Kathy Lutz filed a lawsuit against William Weber, the defense lawyer for Ronald DeFeo Jr. at his trial, 
Paul Hoffman, a writer working on an account of the hauntings, Bernard Burton and Frederick Mars, both alleged uh, clairvoyants who had examined the house, along with Good Housekeeping Magazine, the New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation. They alleged misappropriation of names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy, and mental distress. And the claims against the news corporations were... What are you doing? You're fine. Just what are you going. taking a picture of? We're supposed to just keep going. <laughs> I saw something. I was just taking heck? a picture for prosperity. The Lutzes alleged misappropriation of names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy, and mental distress, and the claims against the news corporations were dropped by the remainder of the lawsuit, and, and the remainder of the lawsuit was heard by Brooklyn U.S. District Court Judge Jack B. Weinstein. In September 1979, Judge Weinstein dismissed the Lutzes' claims, and in, on, in the September 17, 1979 issue of People magazine, William Weber wrote, I know this book is a hoax. We created this story over many bottles of wine. This refers to a meeting that Weber is said to have had with George and Kathy Lutz, during which they discussed what would later become the outline of Anson's book. Uh, the judge also expressed concern about the conduct of William Weber and Bernard Burton relating to the affair, stating there is a very serious ethical question when lawyers become literary agents. hate my happiness anyway <laughs> i was taking a picture i thought i saw something and in my bedroom the various owners of the house since the lutz family left have reported no problems while living there um the people who bought the house right after them in 1977 lived there for 10 years and they said nothing weird ever happened except for people coming by because of the book and the movie it could just be that they're not sensitive to anything paranormal you um, never know okay <laughs> I would imagine that if the this house was so haunted, as it's depicted, that you would not need to be sensitive to experience it. Maybe. I don't know. I think there are some people that are so hell-bent on not believing anything that they could have a ghost walk up and smack them in the face and they wouldn't acknowledge it. I'm not saying that's the case here, but I think there are some people... I agree with you, but not in this case. Yeah. So. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I will not do the Amityville right now, but... <laughs> Maybe someday. Sorry. Because. Don't want to ruin your life, but. You definitely. Well, no, it's fine. I mean, regardless of what happened to the family afterwards, what happened to the DeFeos is horrible. And that should be the primary focus of any story that's taken out of there. And I'm actually embarrassed that it took me this long to actually be exposed to the story the way that it was and not all of the fanfare and sensationalism. Mm -hmm. But. As someone who just recently became a true crime fan, and I've always been a paranormal fan, I would not have gravitated toward that side of the story. Which is fine. I mean, that's not how I ever learned it. Like, my first introduction to that was the Ryan Reynolds movie. Right. So, when you guys were little and you got traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're really good movies if you're a horror fan. Watch them. I mean, just like anything you watch, just take it. For what it is. As Entertain a horror movie. Inter I mean, all movies are made for entertainment value. Yeah. Regardless of what the I mean, the is. book was billed as nonfiction. The movies were never billed no. as nonfiction. I think they're based on actual events or something like that. Who knows? Inspired by a true story is how most mm -hmm. fiction movies based on. Or they always throw that word loosely in there. Mm -hmm. Loosely based, <laughs> so they can't Very get much. sued. All right, so like that is it for our story or our tale or whatever you want to call it, our um, tragedy for mm -hmm. today. Hope everyone is staying warm out there. Hope you all have power. Everybody's staying off the roads because it's very icy. And we're in 
the Midwest, but this seems to be something that's happening all the way down even into Texas. Unless... Yeah, Texas is about to get some winter storms with ice. Yeah. And then um, my husband watches Pat McAfee, his podcast, and they were ending early today so they could go home because they're, they're in Indiana, I believe, and they're getting ready to get lots and lots of ice. So it's kind of a mess everywhere. So be safe. And thanks for listening to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. Please follow us on our socials on Facebook at Monsters and Mixers Pod, on Twitter at Monsters and Mixer, at Monsters Mixers, and on Instagram at Monsters and Mixers Podcast. Like and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Leave a five-star rating and send us those stories via email at monstersandmixers2 at gmail.com or at one of the socials mentioned. See you next time when we dive into another terrifying tale and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horror. Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toasts.